You want it. You need it. It's what everyone's talking about. The Kevin Sheehan Show. Now, here's Kevin. All right, two guests on the show today. Scott Van Pelt coming up here in moments, and then Ben Standing uh, after that. Quickly, Window Nation, if you're thinking about new windows, please give Window Nation a shot. 866-90-NATION or windownation.com. There's no risk. You should get windows replaced if they need to be replaced right now. Um, That will get you in for fall and winter to allow you to really save from an energy bill standpoint. Window Nation has installed 1 million windows. Their installers have an average of 16 years of experience. And if you mention my name, they're going to set something up for you real quickly. You can get a virtual online quote, or they'll set something up to come out to your home following all CDC guidelines to give you a free in-home estimate. You've got nothing to lose. So if you've been thinking about new windows, do it so much many of my listeners, what I've done, what family members have done, and that is go to windownation.com or call them at 866-90-NATION and just get an estimate, and then you can go from there. But you're going to save big 50% off all windows, deferred payments for two years, no down payments, and no interest. It's a deal that you can't beat. windownation.com or 866-90-NATION. PGA Championship Round 2 is either over or it's underway, depending on when you are listening to this. Scott Van Pelt uh, is joining us, and he's joining us from Harding Park out in San Francisco. Actually, you're not at Harding Park quite yet, um, but you are in – I'm assuming you're in the city of San Francisco. Is that where you're, is that where you're staying? Yep, we are. We're, 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 we're like right at the airport, which is great fun for my son who enjoys watching planes land. So I take videos. And uh, and he, I think he'd like me to stay here forever and just send videos. So from there, if I recall, you just jump on the 101, you head up there, and Harding Park's like in that western part of the city, right? Like near that lake, yeah, it, whatever. Lake Merced. Yeah, lake Merced. Like 15 minutes from where we are, and it's uh, it's a it's a really good golf course. I, I I love it, and I just I think it's so cool that they've gotten to host you know, major just cause it's, you know, it's a public course and it was, uh, got great history back to the twenties and it all fell apart and it was a parking lot, and blah, blah, blah. Now, you know, they're hosting a major the players really like it. And it's, uh, very early on it's, uh, it's provided, I think a great stage for the returns of big time sports. You know, it is interesting that, you know, a big city, and I think it's the fourth, uh, you know, third or fourth or fifth largest city in the United States. There are several golf courses right there near that one that are esteemed and pretty famous, right? Oh, yeah. I mean, Olympic? when you think about it, like, look at look at Washington, D.C. You know, like, Washington, D.C. has got congressional, but it's got a bunch of really good golf courses in town. You know, different clubs, and you can argue the merits of, of whichever one. But they're in the and suburbs. Pardon me? They're in the suburbs. The, the, these courses are in San Francisco proper. Yeah, I, I, I see what you're saying. I yeah. You mean, yeah, I, I, I get that. Um, I mean, hey, look, man, I learned to play golf at Haynes Point. I realize it's not going to host a major <laughs> anytime soon, but I mean, it's right there. Right. I mean, but, but, yeah, no, I mean, it's, uh, but I mean, I, these don't feel like, like, you know, um, Olympic and um, and Harding Park, like they're they're not like you don't get off a cable car and walk five feet and stay. Like it's not <laughs> in the city, yeah, city. I know, but I mean, whatever. It's a it's a great town, um, and it's a great uh, golf town, and uh, and we can't go see any of it because we're you know not allowed to do basically anything, which we can get.
get into if you're interested. But uh, you know, again, I think I think everyone's just excited that big, uh, like a huge event is here, and it's definitely it's without question the biggest event that's been played since since March. And you were on the call of a lot of the action yesterday on ESPN Plus, and then on ESPN. And um, I, I forget who told me this. It may have been Corbin or, or Ryan. One of the two said that they heard. You or Nance, somebody explaining how when you came in or you left, the whole thing had to be sprayed down before Jim Nance walked in. Is Am, am I getting the, any yeah. of that right? Yeah, yeah, and, and it was me. Because the thing about people that watch golf and the reason people seem to be really pleased with, with what we did on ESPN Plus in particular, they, just, they, they want to see golf shots. They feel it's their birthright to see <laughs> – uh, 508 golf shots per minute. Um, shut up and show us golf. And I get it. And so we've we've tried to feed that insatiable hunger uh, on ESPN Plus. But as we came on ESPN, and this is a joint venture. We, you know, we host the coverage on our air on Thursday and Friday, <clears throat> and then we also cover some stuff on Saturday and Sunday, leading into the sort of handoff of a baton, if you will, to CBS for the afternoon coverage on the weekend. And so they also work with us on Thursday and Friday. And so when it's time for Jim Nance to come into the tower on 18, um, we have to get out. They have a separate headset uh, for him and for me. They come in and they disinfect the entire area. Um, and there's like a, there's a group. There's like, it's not like some, it's not like some cameraman with it, with a spray bottle of Windex. Like it's, it's a medical group, and I mean, I don't know what, it's, I don't want to make it sound like they come in in hazmat suits, but these are people that understand the protocols for how to come in and clean stuff, and they do. And everyone who's been here, and, you know, included me when I got here, I had to be tested and quarantined to make sure, all right, you, do you, are you positive or not? And obviously, I wasn't. And, and so they're just trying to maintain everything they can to, to create a safe work environment. So the reason I explained that, Kevin, as, as I was getting out is I'm it's going to be a little bit before you guys see live golf again. And that makes the golf fans furious, and they, they, they demand you know a pound of flesh because I want, where's, why aren't I seeing live golf? Well, it might be 10 minutes, it might be 15 minutes before everything is ready to be up and running. So just, just hang tight, and we'll be back to you. You've been um, to I don't know how many majors, covering so many of the majors for 25 years nearly at this point, just about. Yeah. Um, and I, I just describe how much different this is. Well, it's it's the golf course is is every bit of a major golf course. It feels big. It feels important. It feels difficult. I've been I'm walking the golf course on Wednesday with my friend David Duvall, who I've known for all these years, and you know this is a guy that was the best player in the world. He had about about a five year run, yeah. and actually a shorter run. Where he he and he was and he's telling me this the other day, very matter of fact, and he wasn't bragging, but I was just asking about like the mentality of a guy you know who'd won, like Justin Thomas, you know, he won a bunch of events, and he goes, you know, he said I won, I won like eleven tournaments out of like a thirty-three tournament stretch. I mean, he won a third of the tournaments for for a chunk of time there, where he got to be number one in the world. And I'm getting to the point about the about his sort of who he is as a player, who he was. And as we're walking around this golf course, he goes. This golf course looks hard to me. And I started laughing because I'm like, well, hell, if it looks hard to you, 
you know, imagine how it looks to me. I mean, it's a big boy golf course, and it feels like a major. Everything about what it looks like and the setup and the, you know, the, uh, you know, the infrastructure of what they've built. And then there's no one, right? Like the PGA Championship, there'd be 40,000 people here, every bit of it. And they'd be raucous, and they'd be, you know, and I'm, I'm saying if this pandemic never happened or if we were a little bit further down the road and people were allowed to come, I, it'd be even more pronounced if this was like a return for the fans right. to, to, to be able to be out here. But the absence of people, um, is so jarring. And, and Gene Wojciechowski did a great piece yesterday where uh, the, the, the title of the piece was The Sound of Silence. And they're like, ladies and gentlemen on the tee from Jupiter, Florida, the 2000 this and that and the other PGA champion, Tiger Woods. And it's like, it was so weird. Because, I mean, you know how it is, particularly with him. You've been at events when he's introduced people go apeshit, oh, yeah. you know? And it's like, so you're, you're, you're waiting for that, and it's just, there's nothing. Um, and there was one stretch, Kevin, where they got out by, like, the 12th hole, and with that kind of borders, I want to say, like, the 5th hole, where people could kind of look through a fence, and you heard people hooting and hollering when they saw that group. And it was kind of, you know, it's kind of funny. You're like, oh, there's some people who could... Right, you heard, yeah, there. you heard a few of them. And you, 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 you noticed it, you're like, oh, cool, like, people can actually see it. But, I mean... Look, I, we're, we're, we're way past how weird the, the world feels. Everything, obviously, is different, right? But this is the first time I've been at an event where you, you see in real time and you're actually part of the picture that doesn't include, you know, the 40,000 people and it doesn't include the however many hundred or maybe even thousand media members that would typically be part of, of covering it from site. So uh, it's very intimate. Um, you know, you kind of just wander around wherever. It, Andy North said, hey, it makes my job easier when I'm out there on the ground trying to cover golf, you know. So there's things, I suppose there are upsides to it, but the upsides aren't nearly offset by, by what a bummer it is that people can't be out here. By far and away on television, it's the only thing that I've been watching that seems close to normal because, right. you know, when you watch a golf tournament and I watch a lot of golf and you watch a lot of golf and you're at a lot of golf, but you know, there are lots of shots that are hit that are on television without huge galleries and in some cases, no galleries. So it doesn't look that abnormal. Um, but I, I really, this, this event this weekend for me is the most excited I've been about a sporting event since, you know, since it shut down in March. Like, it's not even close. Sure. Right. I mean, and that makes total sense because, because, and I, and I, I don't, I started to say I had an argument. I haven't, I haven't argued with anybody. I would argue with anyone that would try to act as if anything about this week here is in any way worthy of some, some asterisk. I mean, it, why? It, this is the field of the field. The course is still the course. They're not playing in a bubble in Disney. They're not playing in an empty baseball stadium. Um, it's and I mean, you could say, well, they're playing in an empty golf course. Okay, but there, what? There'd be a home field advantage uh, in 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 baseball or in the Stanley Cup playoffs. The the the, the 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 think about like the Caps when they play at home. How much that? How much the building is a part of the energy and the story of what makes a game a game. This is the field, this is the same course, and the stakes are what they are. Somebody is part of history when they when they win this week. And and the tour I think has done 
an excellent job, and, and CBS deserves a ton of credit. Commissioner Jay Monahan deserves a ton of credit. When there were a bunch of positives the week they were in, in uh, Hartford, um, they didn't blink. They just said, "Look, we're going to keep going," and, and good for them. Because I think we, I think this we kind of have to do in life is try to figure it out as best we can, uh, and they they have. And so it's been this this weekend constant. People have watched it. The ratings have been good. Tigers here. You've got all these storylines. You've got the leaderboard after one day just is littered with big-time names. So, I mean, I, I think we'll do an enormous number Friday just because Tiger will be in prime time. And I think CBS has got a chance to do huge numbers for the weekend. So I, I think a lot of people feel the same way you do. Well, and the for you know those of us that live on the East Coast, there's always something special about a West Coast the major. Um, the best. It's so, it's so much fun. It's funny, we were having that conversation – uh, I think on the air the other day, um, and then CJ also said, "Yeah, but you know what else is really great? The British Open when you can turn it on at four in the morning and that's, see it being that's played. A great, it's great too. That's a great point. Such a great point because that well, that's a good one if you, especially if you're if you're someone that's got the bug right. You've got that golf Jones, and maybe you wake up at, at four and you watch, and then it gets it could the person you're interested in could be done by ten a.m. your time, and you go out and you play golf. Exactly. You get that bug, but. But but I think and I and I said as much at some point I looked at my watch and I never changed my watch from East Coast time I don't know because I'm weird I, I never do that head. either yeah okay well then maybe we're not weird but I but I just I look at my watch and I said it, at some point I said you know it's all our friends back on the East Coast it's just, there's nothing better than prime time major championship golf is there because you know maybe you played your round and you get to come home and now you oh, get to watch you know whoever and and it was gorgeous this golf course just looks so good on TV and it's you know late late afternoon sun sun not setting but it just makes it look even uh the aesthetics of it were just gorgeous and so you know on friday night uh i don't know when you're going to post this but if people are listening in the afternoon then you'll be you'll be able to watch tiger and uh and a bunch of the bunch of the big boys going out late today you know what though it's it's funny being and we're both east coast you know born and raised just sports coming from the West Coast in general late in the afternoon and early in the evening has always been interesting, especially in football. And I'm talking about the outdoor sports, obviously. But in football, you know, thinking about UCLA, USC, you know, uh, and, and, you know, I'm dating myself here, obviously, okay, boomer. But let's just say, you know, uh, Oregon <laughs> and Cal uh, or Oregon and, and Washington in a big game. And just to see how beautiful it looks when it's dark and cold, in, you know, where you're watching the game. It's always been that way. Um, but, the, but the golf thing is outstanding. I want to get to a couple of players in particular um, and not necessarily talk just about their rounds. But you mentioned David Duvall. And as you were talking about him, I just pulled up, you know, his Wikipedia page. And there were just a couple of things just struck me immediately. He's only 48 years old. I would have guessed he was much older than that. I don't, I don't know why that is, but he, when his greatness in the late '90s, he was really young. Oh yeah, he came. Well, he came out of Georgia Tech as a four-time All-American, and he was that guy. I mean, he was the dude. Oh was yeah, supposed to be. He was supposed to be what he became. And I was we, you know, Dave and I are. Um, oh, you're saying we, out of got, college, out of college. Oh yeah, okay. Coming out of Georgia Tech, he was supposed to be that guy. And and he was, and I was at his first win uh, as a professional, which was down in Williamsburg. You remember they used to play that the sure. Michelob down there at Kingsmill, Kingsmill and yeah. that was the fir- that was the first win, and it really was like a springboard for him 
that just lit a fuse, and then he went nuts. And the issue for him was that, like a lot of guys, um, you know, Ernie Els, Davis Love III, VJ Singh, you know, they were born at the wrong time because they had to deal with Tiger Woods. And, you know, like David was, he's in a lot of those, in a lot of pictures where he's not the guy. Like the, the, the lens is trained on Tiger, like St. Andrews 2000. Like he's going to finish, he's going to finish off the slam. Okay, well, he played that final round with David Duvall. Like that was the guy who, whose job it was to try to try to put some heat on him, but you know Tiger was so far clear that he just couldn't. And I mean, that's one of those deals where if there's no such thing as Tiger Woods, well, how many majors would David have had? I don't know. Um, but to your point, I think you, I think he probably feels older because he got injured and he didn't have an opportunity in his late 30s and early 40s to continue playing at, at a level where you know, like a Mickelson or a Tiger, he continued to get you know, accumulate wins. And so he's been, uh, how do I put it? I start to say he's been allowed to. He just, by no fault of his own, just because of his his inability to play at the level, um, you know, where he once did, I think he becomes part of your memories more because he hasn't played nearly as much golf. But, you know, he's, I mean, he's not yet not yet 50. But, um, one, of, but one of the reasons I, I, I pulled it up real quickly is I, I recall – and it sort of explains it in the Wikipedia page, his struggles. But I recall him having a lot of anxiety, yips, different things that really derailed his game. And, you know, it talks about personal difficulties from a form of vertigo um, during that time. Yep. I didn't remember it specific to that. But do you remember that period where he was really struggling and it was more mental than physical? Well, I, I think it got mental because it was physical. Like, he... He was, and I mean, I'll I'll say it because it's you. Well, I mean, people are all going to hear this, but I mean, I kid with him because I can because I'm his friend. Like he he was heavy, and then he got really fit. Like he committed to oh, getting absolutely that. absolutely shredded. And I and I joked with him like I'm like, bro, you shot 59 to win a PGA Tour event in Palm Springs when you're fat. Like you should keep eating pizza <laughs> and, and, and and just go shoot 59 and win tournaments. But he he injured himself and. He, in his um, his discs in his back, and that that even as it got better, I think created doubt. And I mean, I can remember having like I don't want to call them like heart to hearts, but I remember having like trying to keep trying to be like give him an attaboy. And I remember saying to him, Dave, you, you know how many people played golf where they didn't know what they were going to do or how it was going to go? Like everybody, but you know how many people who play golf know what it feels like to be the number one player in the world? Like not a lot. You're one of them. And I, I mean, I remember trying to like kind of boost him up. But he just between vertigo and his back, yeah, I remember vividly when it was just a real struggle, and he was he was shooting big numbers, and that's why, like when he, if you remember, when they went to Beth Page that one year in the U.S. Open, he was right there with a chance, um, and and it was, and I get the years confused because they all blend together, but it was the U.S. Open that I guess Glover won at Beth Page. Oh yeah. Um, he was uh, two thousand nine. Two thousand nine. If you pull that up, look at it. He finished like third or something. And that was that was the last great chance he had in a big event. And you know, privately, I I remember I was just I was rooting so hard for him to to do it, just because in in a different, not nearly to the level of Tiger, but it would have represented the same kind of thing as Tiger doing it after all the injuries and doubt and people thought he was done. It would have represented the same kind of thing for him. It would have only been his second major, but. Um, yeah, I was. God, I remember how much I, I thought I just 
wanted him to pull it off. I remember this, and I was just going to say it. I said, I think this was a Monday finish, and it was. Um, well, yeah, it was because it rained every day at best. Yeah. God, that was a terrible week. Yeah. Oh, my God, it was awful. Um, you know, the, it's so the, anyway, his his life and his his professional career is is an interesting um, story for sure because it was a meteoric yeah. rise and then you know a a big time crash pretty quickly um, after yep. the rise. So, all right, um, couple of players to talk about. First of all, I wanted to start with Rory McIlroy. Why hasn't he won a major championship in six years? I alluded to that yesterday in the coverage, and and I want to choose words carefully because like he won the players you want people forget right. last year because i don't think the playoff is ingrained in people's mind right. like it's not something that the majors are just different like they, they try to make the playoffs matter because of money and like i don't think people care that these guys win a, a potload of money because they already got it but he won that too rory did and so i guess what i'm saying is he's, he's won a bunch of big events um and he's a great player but he hasn't won a major since 2014, and I don't know the answer to that. I think he's a he's an interesting guy. He's a thoughtful guy. He's a guy who's on a bit of a sort of self exploration, and he's read all these different books where he's he's not tied to results. Like he's he's just which, by the way, good for him. Like he's I guess what I'm saying, Kevin, is he's human. Like he doesn't look at himself in the mirror and think I'm worthless if I don't shoot 68. Um, but I find it odd, given his talent, and he's got as much of it as anyone, that he hasn't won more major championships or that he hasn't won any in a five-year window. And the thing about this game is if you don't take advantage of a five-year window from late 20s to early 30s, you know, you're going reg- to regret that historically when you're on the back end of your 30s and you're in your early 40s because at some point in there he'll become a dad. And then, then maybe maybe how he views golf changes even more. Maybe he doesn't even care. I mean, I'm not saying is he old, is he, he a father? Is he, does he have young? I don't believe so. Okay. I don't believe Roy's a dad yet. It's interesting because you you raise the possibility that he's not as dialed in or committed as much. Um, if I if, guess, but I don't. But I don't know that to be the case. Like I don't think that the fact that you are you know are well read and have this sort of view of self that isn't defined by golf doesn't mean he's not dialed in. Maybe it means he's just more self-aware than someone who just says, "If I, I, you know, I'm ruthlessly focused on winning majors. Um, and maybe, Kevin, you winning four as quick as he did, you're like, hey, I'm good, man. Like, I need the Masters to win the Grand Slam. I got, I mean, there's, there's maybe three commas in his worth. You know, yeah. I, I, oh, you yeah. know, I, well, I, I don't think, I don't think you wake that, up. That can change your view too. That, that can change your perspective too, because there are just so many guys like him on the tour that are just outrageously wealthy, like to the point where you know you end up having other, you know, other responsibilities that come with that corporate responsibilities, business responsibilities, and you know, for somebody who may be more well-rounded which is sort of what you're describing as well, um, you know, it, it can it can result in it being not nearly as important. I, the way, as a fan, when I watch him, I just think his putting is way too inconsistent, and that's why he well, doesn't win as much that's it. In, in the big that's, spots. Well, that's the technical part. Yeah. That's the technical part. I mean, watching him, and, and David Duvall um, has said as much. He just said he, just said he, he, he hadn't hit it 
he had done it as wedges as well as he should, and he didn't putt it as well. And if you watched on Thursday, you saw like he just and Andy North was with that group. He's like he just he just can't. He doesn't have the speed. He must have hit it past five six. Oh my god! All day long, all day long, and, and he's done that all, before. Yeah, and, and I mean, and well, I mean, it was. I think I, I, these greens are really they're uh, they're not as fast as you're used to because um, these greens, California, you know, the marine layer, they right. tend to hold moisture. They're fast, but they're not blazing. And I, you know, maybe you just tend to hammer them. I don't know. He just he couldn't find the speed on Thursday, but uh, I mean, it's. It's a question that's reasonable, and I ask it. You know, I'm like, how come that guy didn't win more, win more majors? But the other thing, Kevin, it's so friggin' hard to win majors right now. And Duvall said it yesterday. I said the depth of golf right now is, and I paused for a moment to think, what word do I want to use? And David said unprecedented, and I said, do you is that the right word? He said, I believe it is. It's, and he just he went through, you know, just the the depth of how many people there are that come every single week that you go. Well, this guy. Oh, yeah, well, don't forget about that guy. And like I said it, look, Dustin Johnson, how good is he? He's preposterously talented. He's got one, Kevin, one major. Justin Rose, same deal, one. And as I said to David, I'm like, hey, as you know, one is kind of a lot of majors. It's hard to win more than one. I thought Rose had two. One. He lost a playoff to Sergio in in uh, in the Masters. And like that's the thing I said about him yesterday. I'm like, man, when you get a chance to do that, you better take it. Like David knows better than anybody. There were three or four chances he had to win the Masters, and it just didn't happen. And then you're sitting there and you're 48, and you're never going to win it. You know what I mean? Yeah. Uh, I'm rambling now. I guess no, no, it's just, but, but it's Rory or anybody. Oh, winning it's, majors is really hard. I mean, well, what's so amazing? Um, first of all, the, the PGA Championship field is always the deepest, right? Of the of the right. four majors, but you know. In the golf pool that you and I are both in, I'm sitting there on Wednesday night and I'm going through, you know, all the players I haven't used and looking at the field. And I'm like, you know, wow. I mean, it's so deep. And you look at the 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 the, um, the leaderboard yesterday, and guys like Zach Johnson who have won majors and Martin Keimer who have won majors, they're in this field. And and then all these guys that have been hot recently, whether it's Berger or the guy last week that played well, Tom Lewis, or the young guys that everybody thinks are going to win eventually. Victor Hovland would be in that. It's so deep. If you follow the sport like we do, it's incredible how many players you would say, yeah, he's got a chance to win this week. There, it's it's got to be look as deep as dropping, it's ever been. Look at you dropping Tom Lewis on the people because well, you're trying to pay attention because you got a, you picked a winner one week and now all of a sudden you're no, in the two mix. Times. Two times I'm back in the mix. Oh, I've got t- I've got two. Uh, I, I had Webb Simpson when he won, and I had Justin Thomas last week when Good he won. And that I'm vault- sure everybody listening to your podcast yeah. is thrilled to know how that you're vaulted doing the golf me pool. to 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 number three in in the golf pool. Um, Good for you. I cashed last year. Maybe you'll cash this year. Uh, what did you think of Tiger? And more importantly, what do you think of his chances this weekend to be in the hunt? Um. Well. To be to just so we're clear here, I mean we're talking before the second. Uh, yeah, day it's eleven a.m. on Friday, East Coast time. Right. So it's. I mean, I mean, there's there's a long, long way to go uh, for all these guys. You know, like hey, Martin Keimer, Zach Johnson, cool. I mean, that's you know, great start, but you know, that's a quarter of a it's first quarter of a football of an NBA game. Um, I, I'm I was impressed at how he played because I had no idea what to expect, because he just hasn't played golf. And it's entirely reasonable for him to, 
to, at this stage, truly not care about anything but the, ma- the majors. Like, there's no point. Like, he doesn't need to go anywhere and play. Doesn't need to go to Memphis. Doesn't need to go to Harbortown. Doesn't need to go to any of these places. And he didn't. But because he's got this bad back, and because when he did play at, at, at uh, Muirfield, he complained about his back. And he does. He normally is really, really hesitant to do that. But he was honest. He's like, you know, it's bothering me. It's it's not good. And um, so, okay, I, I saw him in a practice round uh, Monday, Tuesday. It's hard to remember which day it was. And during practice rounds, like, I, I'll walk with people and I'll talk when it's clear that they're not sort of in a grinding mode. But he had that faraway look, and I've known him way too long to go up and start playing, like, back slap and, hey, how's it going? I just left him alone. And he was doing all these deep knee bends on tees, and I'm looking at him, and it's cold outside. And I'm like, man, he looks old, and he looks he feels like crap. That's what he looked like to me. And he was, uh, he was obviously just sort of, you know, working through whatever. Well, he comes out on Thursday, and he looks like Tiger Woods. You know, he putted it well, he hit it well, he never looked like he was in any discomfort, and so all the things physically that would be kind of tells if he didn't feel right were absent. And so that is a huge positive for, you know, the, the, the chances of him competing because unlike most players in this field, he's actually played here and won here. So, you know, a lot of the guys, when they got here, it's blind to them. Well, Tiger knows it because, you know, he's played here and won here, got history here. So I thought everything, everything about Thursday that, that Tiger Woods did was positive. Well, he really putted it well with that new, I guess it's a longer putter. I thought his... It is, and he explained that because his back, he's like, the, you know, he just even... And I thought that was interesting because the, put, the difference in a putter length isn't going to be like, he's not using a long putter, but just even fractionally not having to bend down more is, is, right. is a help. And so that's why he did it, so he could be a little bit more upright. Is there a better clutch performer in the sport than Brooks Kepka? Right now, no. I mean... I don't know. I don't even know how you'd argue that. Um, and 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 he's. I I really I dig him. He doesn't give a bleep. Are we allowed to cuss? I always forget. Of course. Like, well, he doesn't give. He doesn't. He's got none to give, as they say. Like he doesn't. I don't think he likes Bryson DeChambeau, so he just heckles them. <laughs> right. you know what I mean? Like he makes fun of them. Um, and he he he. I think he, you know who he reminds me of. You know that scene in Goodwill Hunting where. Like Matt uh, Damon's character is going through like solving a proof on the board, yeah. and the, the professor is sort of fumbling around, and Damon's just like, "Do you know how easy this is for me?" Like, yeah, right. He's offended. Yeah. He's just—it's off-putting to him that you don't understand how easy this is to me. You can't do it, but I can blind. And golf feels that way for him. I think like he doesn't love it. He's made that no secret. He doesn't grind over the game. He's made that no secret. He he works at it. But he just he he cares when he cares, and when he does, which is the majors, he shows up, and it's like let's go, man. And and you look at his finishes, and when he hasn't won, he like who Tiger beat at Augusta. Well, in the end, it was Kepka, and he's 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 there constantly with a chance. And you know, yesterday we're talking Friday. It was Thursday. We were on ESPN Plus, and he started on the back. It's a par five, and he didn't make a birdie, and then he made a bogey, and then he made a grinding par, and it's like three holes in, and he's one over, and you're like, wow, he looks a little, you know, all right, it's a major, and it's a bit of a, of a struggle. Well, you know, 
five birdies later, you know, he's four under par, and he's like, oh, so he's one off the lead. Um, he's just got a uh, an ability to find the gear when it matters that at the moment feels like he's the only one that has it every time. There's plenty of guys that have gears, right, that they find. He seems to have it anytime there's a major. He's got complete focus locked in. And uh, let's you know, let's go shoot a score, and he does. You know, I don't know if this is true or not, but I don't know that there has been a more overwhelming favorite, um, odds wise, uh, percentage picked in pools, than Kepka this weekend, uh, other than Tiger Woods, you know, in his prime. Like he's become such the obvious go-to pick in such a short period of time. I mean, he won that first Open in 2017, I think. So we're talking about basically three years. He's become the best big-game guy in the sport, and Vegas takes notice. He was such a big favorite. He still is. I was looking at it this morning. I think he's like a 3-to-1 favorite, and the next closest is 8-to-1, and he's a shot back. Yep, well, I mean, again. It's one one round. Yeah. After after Thursday is, is you know it's it's insignificant just given his track record. But no, you're right. It's and it and, and you know it's interesting. I don't know if I've told this story. I'll try to make. I'll just try to give you the cliff notes. The year Phil won the Open at Muirfield, and again I'm terrible with years. I want to say it was 2014, but I mean it could have been. I mean I don't know. I'm terrible at this, but I know Phil won at Muirfield. I was there, <laughs> and the Tuesday of that week. And I was just talking about, like, you know, walking with guys during practice rounds. Um, and I had, I walked with a group, and the group was Marion. Ricky Fowler. Say again? And not Muirfield, Marion. No, no, Muirfield. Oh, Muirfield. The oh, 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 the, the, the British the, Open. That's right. 2013. God, that was a 2013. What, that was where he shot 65 in the final round or whatever, something like that. Incredible round. Right. What Phil did there I, was a. Because I thought he had, I mean, I'd have bet a million dollars five years before he'll never win a major, win, win that major because yeah. he doesn't know how to play open championship golf. Anyway, it's Tuesday and it's the Phil money game. And it's Phil, Dustin Johnson, Ricky Fowler, and Brooks Kepka. Now, what's what was telling about that is it was 2013 and Brooks Kepka played at the time on what was called the Challenge Tour. The Challenge Tour is the equivalent of like what is now the Corn Ferry Tour. Right. In Web. the U.S., com, which yeah. was once Nike, Web.com, has been named a billion things. But you know the tour I'm talking about. So he had gone from Florida State, went to Europe to play, which I think is really interesting, because uh, I'm imagining, like, Kepka running around in Belgium, you know what I mean? <laughs> um, but he went there to go play golf and, and play pro and, and grind it out, and he went there and he won a bunch of, of, of those events, which got him a chance for uh, to play in the Open. And so here are these three stars. And in 2013, all those guys are already stars. And this dude, no one knows. But I knew who he was because I knew that he was this American guy that went over there. And so as we walked during the practice round, I was just walk, I was talking to Brooks, um, just about being part of the group. And he didn't say much of anything. Who's, the, who's, the, group, just, who's the group again? Tell me who's in the group again. Phil, Phil and Ricky, they were a team. Dustin Johnson and Brooks Kepka. So what, what is, for those guys. that don't know, what is the, what, what is the money game? Well, it's a Tuesday. It's just a Tuesday practice round. So you're gonna you're gonna kill two birds with one stone. You're gonna go out. And you're gonna prepare for the major, and then you're gonna make it interesting because you're gonna play. Right. You're gonna play for some stakes. Okay. And so, the fun part of that was that it, you know they were just goofing around, and they got to like 16. I'll never forget it. It's the, it's the 
Tony and Mickelson looks at looks me. He's like, "You think we should turn the screws on him now?" I'm like, "I'm like, whatever you think." He stuffs it in there like they're two feet. Ricky makes a birdie. They made eagle on 17, and they win the money. And I said to Kepka when it was over, I'm like, "Yeah." I said, "Look, it cost you some dough." I said, "But that's that's as valuable an experience as you can have." And he's like, "He's like, that's why." He's like, "I didn't say a word." I was like, "I'm just trying to learn. I'm just trying to learn." But here's what I'm getting at. Even then, Kevin, in 2013, these stars, Fowler, Mickelson, Johnson, saw enough in him, thought enough of him, that they wanted him to be part of this group and play in this money game. They wouldn't have, they wouldn't have invited some slappy right. to play, but he, was, he fit in then, and that's before he was even a guy. And now here he is, you know, not that long later, and he's the guy, you know? And yeah. it's, it's amazing how quickly he figured out what it was to win majors and um you know he won it in in a, in a runaway and he run it where he had to grind it out he had that big lead at Beth page and you know fell all the way down to one but he held on for dear life and andy said you could you could take more out of that than, than winning in a runaway because you had to you had to you had to dig it out you know what i mean so i don't know man he's he's i'm again i'm rambling but he's got uh He's got it, man. He's well, got the he, he's also one of those dudes, like Dustin and a few others, where you can tell he's just an athlete too. You know, he's You're this exactly guy. Right. I mean, I, he probably could play anything. Yeah, I, I think you're right. Dustin more than him. Dustin's uh, Dustin's absurd, like truly absurd. Just uh, just athletically gifted. I always joke around with him, like when you walk, when he walks, like he walks like a panther. Like he doesn't walk like a human yeah, being, no, you know what true. I mean? It's just he just saunters down yeah. the, and he's. And I watched him hit drivers the other day, Kevin. It is preposterous what Dustin Johnson does with a driver in his hand. Speaking of uh, what players do with a driver in their hands, what about DeChambeau? And off of Kepka, they've got this you know running thing going. I asked Sands was on with me two days ago on radio. So what is the, the word on DeChambeau? Like, how different is he? Do the players like him? Um, just give us, you know, a, a minute or two on, on him. I don't know. I don't know if they do. I know they respect him. I mean, I know that they're amazed at what he's done. Um, amazed. And to a man, they're all, like, nothing but praise for that. But he's this guy that, you know, it's, He's got all this physics and science, and he knows yeah. he knows um, you know uh, like like the, the humidity and the this and that. And he's just all he's got all this sort of all these different equations that he that he puts into putts and all that. I gets gets eye rolls from his peers. I'll just put it that way. Um, and then you know the fact that he's gotten kind of aggressive with you know, like rules officials and you know. To, I don't know. Like the fact that Kepka goes back at him as, as as pointedly as he does, I think is pretty telling. You know what I mean? Right. Like, I, 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 I do they like? I don't know. I'm not out here enough to know how they view him. But I think the way people act towards him tells me that you know they 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 want to kind of tell him to shut the bleep up. Sometimes you they know? want they want to take but, his action. Kinda. Yeah, kind of. I mean, especially in majors. The guy's never finished better than top 15, right. um, which is kind of – I mean, well, let's be fair. He's been out here five minutes, man. It's not like it's, it's not like he's underperformed. Um, but it's the guy, it's the guy I, that's going to use all the data to bring down Vegas. Yeah. Yeah, I guess. I guess. And, I mean, one player, and I won't identify this player just because – but he said to me, he said, look, 
how long can you physically do what he's doing? Like, put that much more weight on your body and swing that hard at it before you're going to have back problems. He goes, look, he's young now, so it's fine. Have fun and, and let it rip. But how long can you do this um, before something goes wrong? Um, and and I, I, I mean, this was, this was an older player who I think maybe has a better sense of wear and tear. But I'd say, like, on the range, another player who was a major, who was a major champion said, "Have you seen him swing the driver yet?" I said, "No." He goes, "Stick around." He goes, "You got to see it." He said, "It's a circus." <laughs> it's like, a, um, and like these are this isn't you or me talking. This is a pro, right? Who's saying of another guy, "You got to watch him hit a club." That got pros don't say stuff like that. So he's definitely like seen as a. Um, another guy said he's like a, you know what he's like he's like one of those big beefy long drive guys. The difference is he's actually a great player. But that's what he's done. He's built his body like a long drive guy. He swings at it like a long drive guy. But then he goes and shoots, you know, 65. So Those two warm-up swings are just so aggressive. It's unbelievable. It's like, it's like what you would see somebody who's never played the game just sort of walk out there and swing super hard. Correct. It's just, I mean, and again, he's, he's enormous. So um, he's, he's, He's managed to he's managed to figure it out in a short period of time. Bryson DeChambeau is a is a show um, for sure. I mean that that's that, <laughs> that's the part about him that is um, uh, it, he's entertaining to watch. I'm not rooting for him. I, I I bet I feel the way other players feel. I'm not rooting for him, but I love to see him swing the driver uh, for sure. Um, before you run, because I know you got to head over to the course here shortly. Changing subjects completely. It's been, you know, it's been a wild month and a half down here where you're going to be moving um, very shortly uh, down here to do uh, your show with Steve, uh, the Scott Van Pelt Sports Center, which will start to um, come from Washington, D.C., which uh, we're all excited about. But this last month and a half with the football team, the name's gone. Uh, there's a Washington Post, you know, story on 15 women that stepped forward to accuse and allege sexual harassment. Um, with, by the way, an internet speculation leading up to it that had, you know, Snyder with Epstein and it just craziness. You know, it yeah, it's, that got wild, man. Yeah, got that, crazy. That was really that was not a that was not a good look for media types that took to, they took the opportunity to use the fact that a story was coming out as cover to just baselessly speculate about like. Reddit stories, you know what I mean, like internet stories. And let me just be clear: many times there's something to there's there's something to that smoke. But like people were just like media people were th- were throwing stuff out there, like yeah, I'm hearing like this and that and the other thing, and here's what I hear. And then the story came out, and it, I, I shouldn't have jumped to you. I mean, the story is significant, but it wasn't the stuff that people were talking about on the internet. No, it actually did the story a bit of a disservice, and. You know, I don't even know if we've talked about this. Maybe maybe we have. The story, if nobody knew it was coming and it got dropped on your phone on a 4 o'clock on a Thursday afternoon, you would have been wide-eyed. I mean, you know, Liz and Will, uh, Liz Clark and Will Dobson did a great job. I mean, this isn't two people uh, alleging this. This is 15 people. You rarely see that in that kind of a story. So, um, but because it wasn't Epstein or sex trafficking or some sort of drug ring, you know, it was it actually emboldened the franchise a little bit. They sent out uh, Scott. They sent out a letter from their sales department, their sales and marketing department, to clients, and they attached the post article. And in the letter, which I got several copies of from from various people who I know who are clients of the team. It actually says in the letter 
the wild internet speculation was not true. The only thing that is true is this attached story here from the Washington Post. It was almost like they were saying, see, look over here. This thing, it's not that bad. The thing that you heard it was going to be, it wasn't. Um, it's crazy that they would do that, um, but it's sort of typical of the franchise. But anyway, um, that and the name, which you grew up a you know Washington Redskins fan, what did you make of all of it? Well, and let me just say this pre- preemptively: I'm gonna I'm gonna call them um, I'm gonna call them the Redskins on the air. Uh, not don't get don't get mad. Don't get to, don't, I'm not being defiant. I'm gonna do it. I'm gonna say it because I'm gonna slip. Because I called the San Diego Chargers the San Diego Chargers, even though they the L.A. Chargers, because I had called them that my whole life. I called the Brooklyn Nets the New Jersey Nets the first year that they were there in Brooklyn because they'd been the New Jersey Nets my whole life. And in talking about them out here with, um, as a, for, for instance, uh, Joe LaCava, who's Tiger's caddy, as soon as I saw him, I walked up and I gave him 40 bucks because every year he, that I've known him, we've had 20 and 20 on every Washington-New York game. And when I saw him, we were talking, and I, just in the conversation, I started to say that the name, and then I stopped myself, and I said, "I, I said that I'm going to do that all year, I'm sure." And he's like, "Of course." He said, "It'll be impossible not to. You just said it forever." And I, uh, like you, Kevin, I read quite a bit about this because people would always ask me, "Why don't? Why do you call them that name?" And I said, "Well, that's it because it's their name, and because all I've read is." The Washington Post article that they did not not what white people or black people or the, any the other poll, people the 2016 poll the 2016 poll the Washington Post did that I would that I may, I should presume there is uh, their intentions but I, I they did it and I maybe they thought that they were going to get different results but the results they got were that 90 percent of Native American people did not find the name offensive 90 yeah. percent so I I took that to mean that everyone that tells me this is a slur and it's the same as the N-word are, are just wrong. Because this is how people feel for whom it, 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 would, it would most pointedly mean a slur. So that is how I always operated, that this is the team's name, this is the best intel I have about how Native American people feel about the name, and so that's how I carried on. It became very clear that this moment in time when many things are changing was going to be the time that that Washington's name changed as well. And I will call them whatever their name is moving forward. If it's Washington football team, if it's Washington football club, if it's whatever, fine. I like I have no emotional attachment to the name. None. I'm not I'm not like defiantly going to wear shirts and say the name cuz no, no, no zero emotional attachment. So, um it, the, the, the time was, the time, I started to say the time was right. I don't, the time made it inevitable that this was going to change, Re, whatever Native American people felt or not. The public at large was saying, this has to happen, and right now, when the public at large says that about most anything, that's what happens, right? 
Yeah, I mean, you know, you know my feelings on this. We've talked a, a lot about it, and everybody that's listening to the podcast knows my position. Yeah, and, they know. How you feel. And and you right. don't you don't know um you don't have anything uh to be um apologetic about for slipping and saying the Redskins and the the, the most frustrating thing, and I've mentioned this on the podcast several times over the last month, and I don't know if you and I have talked about this. I think the most frustrating thing for someone like me is first of all, you know, if one less person feels less if one person feels less marginalized because the name changed, I'm happy about that. That's that's awesome. Um that's but, well said. But, and, and that's and by the way, that's I'm sorry to interrupt, but I should have said that. But that and that's right. For, for, you know what? Nine out of ten, ninety percent of the people felt that way, but that means ten percent felt marginalized right. by that, and, and and that and that's too many people. And, and, that, and well, I don't I don't know if it's too, too many to make the name change, but the point is, is I still have a sensitivity towards those people, and who knows? Maybe if they had you know done another poll, you know, after uh, what happened in Minneapolis, maybe the numbers would have been different. But the thing that really just continues to irk me because it continues to be the case um, on a day-by-day basis when this is written about is when people look back, you know, 10, 15, 20 years to July 2020 when the name was finally um, changed um, and and stripped, uh, you know, really by corporate pressure more than anything else. What really bothers me, Scott, is it's being recorded for history as this shameful terribly racist, heinous name finally in July of 2020 was dropped and all of the people that supported it and the owner that continued with it. um, Finally, those racists were, you know, had that name taken away from them. And, you know, whether it's Peter King or Max Kellerman, they are being disingenuous because they know that this is a complex and debatable topic. They know it's not, it's the N-word, mic drop, end of discussion, dictionary defined. That this has been a very complicated conversation, and yet it's not going to be recorded that way by them. And I, and I find that to be... Um, I, I find that to be a bit repulsive, because they're, they're being dishonest. They know that the Post in every single data point has supported that overwhelmingly Native Americans have not found the word to be insensitive and actually have supported the team keeping the name, but it never gets mentioned. It's more, we just, as a collective you know, a group of media people, we just ended the worst racist wrong in recent modern history. I just can't stand it being recorded that way. I would just I would just ask for the people that that are that are so certain in 2020 that that's the case that then why it was in 2015 that they weren't on their platforms equally as and, and equally and with as much as they always say keep that same energy where was it then if it was so evident if it was if it was so crystal clear to you ten years ago five years ago I think that then you would have been you'd have, you'd have been pounding your desk and demanding that that anyone that that said the name or cheered for the team was some was some racist. You just said it then. It it just well, some of those know. people have been on it for a long time. So, no, somehow you're right. Yeah. No, no, there are some people that have that have made that have made those points. Others feel like it's a bit more opportunistic. Yes, in terms of in terms of how passionately they're arguing against. And just so we're clear, like I was never passionately defending. Never. That yeah. wasn't my. That was not my position. Right. My position was this is their name. I yeah, I grew up rooting for the team and. Based on what 
the most information that exists on how Native American people feel is not that they feel that way. But again, uh, I, I don't care yeah. that they changed the name. I'm not upset in not one shred of of my being is upset. And that's fine. because you've become uh, it, it, you've become much less of a fan over the years because you haven't lived here and because of, and also they stunk and they stunk and. Uh, look, admittedly, I've become less passionate about the team as well. And this name issue, which used to be, you know, something that what it wasn't like I was vehemently defending it. I was just always, wait a minute, why would you change it when there's absolutely no evidence that the people that matter the most want it changed? Um, but I'm less passionate about it as well, which has frustrated many of of. Uh, my listeners, because they expect me to be out there really fighting, you know, when, when it was still in doubt, you know, a, a month ago or so. But, you know, I, I think I mentioned this to you. It's like 20 years from now. A grandpa, how could you have been such a racist and rooted for a team with that name? And I'm going to have to explain yeah. to him, no, no, I'm, I'm, I, I'm a good guy and I'm open-minded. Um, but what you're reading uh, from Mike Florio from, you know, July of 2020 actually isn't true. It's not the way um, he, he framed it very inaccurately, um, which is what they've been doing for a while. But, man, did they jump on it uh, when it finally uh, came to an end. But anyway, so are we going to have football or not? Uh, pro football, yeah. Pro football, they'll play. They'll figure out a way because okay. they're pros and they're being paid for it. Uh, college football is really tricky, really, really tricky. Um, and as you and I were talking, I just saw Maryland had like six guys opt out and some significant people that were starting players um, uh, along the line. Um, Who opted uh, out? Opted out. Um, Johnny Jordan, uh, oh, really? Fontaine, uh, Jackson, the quarterback that started last year. Now maybe he saw the writing on the wall. Maybe if he feels like the, the I mean, keep calling him to his brother. I should do a better job than that. But if Tungabailoa, maybe if he gets a if he gets a waiver, maybe they, that's what they think. But what it's neither here nor there. You asked, will we have college football? And and I can't tell you, Kevin, walking around out here, every player is like, man, they're gonna play college football. And I say, on the one hand, they have to because the the uh, sustainability of college sports is dependent upon the money that college football generates. So they have to, or else college sports, it feels like, will we'll die. On the other hand, I, I don't know how they can, because college players have no union to represent their concerns. Um, they're, they're, each, each conference is going to have to figure out what protocols look like. If, if these protocols, like the Big Ten is talking about, where if there's a contact trace where if one person had it and, you're any, and you block them, you're out for 14 days, well, then it'll never, there's no chance. So... On the one hand, it feels like it has to so sports survive. On the other hand, it feels like it it can't happen because I don't know how the protocols can be established that will allow for it. And once college campuses get back together, as we have seen, I mean, there will be spikes in cases. Um, and I don't know, man. Like, I if if I had to bet on on is there college football, I bet that there's not, and that's a horrible thing to say out loud because. I love the sport and I want to watch it. And from a from look, just being honest, for for a business standpoint, from for ESPN, it'd be crushing to not have college football. Yeah. Crushing. Um, so sure, but 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 again, I mean, this is this is similar to to, to Washington's name. You know, like I, I'm not so insensitive that if that if people feel a certain way, 
that it's damaging, like this is potentially damaging to young people, uh, then I don't, I'm not, I'm not an asshole. I'm not over here going, I want football and I don't care about your health. Of course I care about your health. The thing that's, that's crazy about this, that whole topic to me is that we, there's so little we know about this. Like, well, young people get it and they get better. Like I know the number of schools that they had a bunch of positives and I asked the coach, did anyone have a symptom? And they said, no, not a temperature, nothing. They positive, tested positive, zero symptoms. This is and important. Like, well, this is important information. It feels like it that like, but 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 what we don't know is you you I re, I mean I read these stories, but I don't know the context. Like you have people that had it, and then it turns out that they've actually got heart damage. It looks like they right. had a heart attack. I'm like, okay, well now hold on. Did all these young people that had it but didn't have a temperature? Are, are you telling me they're wandering around with hearts that have been compromised? Because if that's the case, then well, of course not. Of course, I don't. You can't play football if that's the case. But if you had it, never knew you had it, and a week later you're fine. Well, then I'm like, well, then what are we doing? Are we really going to stop the show over that? But I don't think anyone can tell me definitively that they know because no one does know. So college seems like maybe it's a bridge too far just because of all of the hurdles that have to get to get cleared. You know what I mean? Um, I know they're going to try. I know they're going to try to give themselves a chance, but yeah. it just seems so complicated. The NFL, I think, will because they're professionals, and you could opt out and get compensated. You just create a bigger pool of people. You, you look at the PGA Tour. A guy gets it. You sit him down. Nick Watney got it at somewhere, Harbortown. Danny McCarthy later, got it. Back. Yeah, well, I mean, and he's, he's here this week. Yeah. And, you know, I mean, that's different here because it's not a team sport, so you can kind of go sequester yourself. But, I mean... I don't know, Kevin. I tweeted out. I don't. Tweet I know. I was just going to. I was just going to read it because it's exactly what I've been saying too. Go ahead. Tell everybody what you knows? tweeted. Exactly. Who I the t- hell knows? The day that the day that the Marlins all tested positive, everyone screamed, "Well, that, that's it. You got to pull uh, the plug on baseball." And I was like, "Who the hell knows?" Well, guess what? They didn't pull the plug no, on baseball. They didn't. Now the Marlins apparently don't lose. They've got a, they've got zombie Marlins. They've got these people know like I don't know who they are, and they win every game they play. Which, I, by the way, I would love that. I would love if this team that you know that has been bad and has a bunch of people that get sick and brings in players no one's ever heard of suddenly became like the, the good team during this crazy pandemic. It would be hysterical. They're six and one. They're I think it's the best start for a team that lost 105 games or more the year before since 1899. I think I read that early this morning. And you know they just swept the Orioles with, as you mentioned, a bunch of people that nobody even knows. Um, but it's it's totally the appropriate answer unless you're some sort of scientist or doctor. And even they seem to have um, <laughs> you know very little yeah. clue. I was going to say, hold on now, hold on. The yeah. scientists and doctors have told us. One I know. thing, and then a week later said not just something slightly different, but the exact opposite of what they told us a week before. And that's like okay it, if the data changes. Like, I don't want them to be beholden to a, a prediction or, or uh, you know, a statement from two weeks ago if the data changes and they feel differently. But, yeah, I mean, it's every... You know what? That's fair. That's fair, Kevin. You're right. And, but but because so many things that they've said they've tur- they've circled back on, I think people... And God knows the climate is such at the moment where, where you know there's very there's not a lot of reasonable discourse. But because trust the science, and then the science is like, well, which one do you want us to trust? The thing where you said this, or the thing where you said it was day, or the thing where you said it was night? Which one should we trust? Like you're right, don't be beholden. But when when you move the goalposts every week, we don't know where the hell we're supposed to kick the ball. 
Um, to your college football thing, too, um, this Tommy and I, I think, had this conversation yesterday. What a lot of people don't realize when they just say, shut it down, shut it down, shut it down. You have small town America, small business America, totally reliant in so many of these college towns on the six to seven home games a year. And it's going to be devastating economically um, if there's no college football. Uh, devastating. I mean, there's so many different um, ramifications economically to no football, and, and it goes much deeper than any other sport, uh, which is why I think, you know, both college and pro are going to give it the college try. And baseball, to your point, I mean, Boz wrote when the Miami Marlins had all those people test positive, it's over, shut it all down, sports. And, you know, the bottom line is it's 0.2% of, of the players being tested or tested or testing positive. And no one has gotten really sick. But at the same time, there could be long-term effects from testing positive and being infected. So who the hell knows? Uh, with that, uh, yeah, that's it. All right, that's it. I'm done. Uh, thank you for doing this, uh, and have a safe weekend, fun weekend. We'll be watching. Yeah, and hey, when uh, when we get down there, can you help me bring some couches in? Yeah, I I can set that up for you. <laughs> Not it. I'm going to be there with refreshments. Yeah, you're going to be there sitting in a lawn chair, saying no, 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 but just a little further left. Just a, no, no. Put, yeah, yeah. put the credenza. No, no, that that no. does in that room. I, and uh, this this oh. should come down here. Um, the most important we'll be, room uh, will be wherever you've got the big screen and refrigerators. That'll be. We're the, gonna get that set up. Yeah, we're gonna get that set up for you. We will be. We'll we'll be ready for football if there is any. I'll promise you that. All right, take care. All right, pal. Good to talk to you. See. You. All right, thanks to Scott uh, for spending so much time uh, as he is out in San Francisco heading to Harding Park, and you can watch him as he spearheads ESPN's coverage of the PGA Championship. Quick word about mybookie.ag, then we'll get to Ben Standig. If you're betting already and you've got a place online that you're betting through, that's fine. I would still urge you to go to mybookie.ag. You can compare point spreads and get the better of the point spreads, perhaps at mybookie. Um, Their pricing is excellent, and you get paid if you win. They also are offering, if you use my promo code, KevinDC, a free $10 MLB wager. Mybookie.ag is a place where you can rely on the fact that they're going to give you fairness on point spreads, prices, and you're going to get paid if you win. That's a big deal in this business. Again, if you're new to it, use mybookie.ag. They've got a lot of offerings, including the $10 MLB wager. And if you're already wagering and you're looking for a second or a third shop to do comparison, you know, line shopping on, um, I would urge you to consider mybookie as well. Mybookie.ag, you bet. You win, you get paid. And again, my promo code, use it, is Kevin DC. All right, let's bring in Ben Standig, who, of course, covers uh, the Washington football team for The Athletic. Uh, I've urged everybody for uh, a while now to subscribe to The Athletic, and you can, you can get a discount right now for doing it. Ben does such a great job covering the team. Rhiannon Walker, everybody that covers all the local teams does a great job on The Athletic. And you are um, a, a someone who writes quite often, and even though we end up talking once every week and a half on either the radio show or the podcast, it seems like every time I have you on, there's another two or three Ben Standig columns to discuss 
And you got Jack Del Rio one-on-one last week, and you did a great job with him. You um, obviously have been a part of all of these Zoom conference calls or interviews with coaches and players over the week. So we've got a lot to talk about, and I want to take it chronologically since um, you were on last and start with your interview with uh, Jack Del Rio, the Redskins' new defensive coordinator, a man who's been very active on social media, and you did ask him about that. But what I want you to share with people is what you found out about, A, players he's really excited about, and B, style of play, style of defense. Uh, well, as always, thank you. Uh, <clears throat> thank you for having me. Um, yeah, so, you know, I... Uh, I didn't have a ton of heads up that that it was going to happen that that day. So you know, there's obviously a few things you should generically want to ask the defensive coordinator, especially a guy you know the defensive coordinator for a new team and and all that. But I was trying to think of different ways to say so. You know, plus I was trying to think of different ways to ask what do you think of your players, especially when he hasn't seen any of them at this point. You know, the training camp is only just starting. And there's been no off season. So I thought to myself, well, what's he been doing all summer? So he's probably been watching tape. And I guarantee these guys, the way they watch tape, they gravitate, even if they try to watch every single player, they gravitate towards some more than others. So that's, I framed the question as, of the, of the players whose tapes you watch, who you enjoy the most, whatever that, whatever that meant. Maybe he thought somebody was just amazing, or maybe he saw somebody not, you know, being misused that he could fix or, or whatever. And the first name he gravitated towards was Deron Payne, which I think is interesting on a few fronts. One, you know, it feels like everybody in the defensive line gets overlooked. It's not Chase Young right now. Um, and two, I don't think Payne, even among the two Alabama guys they drafted in the first round, is the one that people always think of first. And Jonathan Allen tends to be the one first. But you definitely talk to people around the league. And, um, you know, I think there is a sense that Payne is the one to, to watch of, of those two, and that, that he's got a chance to be something really special inside. And, you know, I think – you know, without crapping on the previous administration or the previous regime, I think there was a sense that they were misusing him a bit. Um, Del Rio talked about less two gap, more being uh, a penetrating uh, type interior line, you know, get, get moving, get, getting up the field, and that he really thinks that Payne has a chance to be a breakout player for the team this year. And, you know, obviously with all the edge talent they have, with, with Chase Young, Kerrigan, Montez Sweat, if you want to throw Ryan Anderson in there, that um, you know that, that that you know it's going to open up more opportunities inside. You think you would think logically, and Payne is the one to take advantage of. He he also mentions Cole Holcomb and um, Ryan Anderson as two other guys whose tape he he enjoyed. <laughs> he enjoyed so um, you know I, I thought it was just a, a fun way to sort of get a, a hopefully an, an off the cuff response to things we know he's thinking, but you know not just tee it up in the, the most obvious way. <laughs> Who do you think is going to be interesting? And um, I think that gave some honest responses. Yeah, I liked his response um, to you on Payne as well because I, I think you're probably right. More of the fan base focuses in on John Allen. I have spent a lot of time talking about Deron Payne. I'm not trying to slap myself on the back because it may not work out, but I think there is a different level of upside in Payne than the other interior D linemen. He is freakishly athletic. 
Um, and, you know, we know that the last couple of years, even though Rivera and Del Rio aren't going to come out and say it directly, but, you know, the scheme didn't necessarily fit the talent. The, 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 the way they were coached, um, I don't necessarily think uh, worked out for, for anybody defensively. But Payne, to me, is one of those obvious upside blue chip a type players like a guy who could become top three or four at his position because of his athletic talent the thing about him that I've heard is it's just too bad that that John Allen's mindset isn't in Deron Payne's body and and not that people minimize or think uh you know that little of of John Allen because he's a tremendous talent as well but Payne's talent is maybe the highest along that defensive interior front. Yeah, and the, the way you just phrased that, it kind of reminds me with the Wizards when you had Otto Porter and Kelly Oubre together. Yeah, and Oubre right. was just an incredibly dynamic athlete who did not seem to always understand how to play basketball. And Otto Porter was a guy who was, from a, an NBA athletic standpoint, was fairly pedestrian. But from a mental game and a fundamental standpoint, it was off the charts. And if you could, if you could merge the two, you'd have an amazing small forward. And yeah, I think that's, I, I, I've heard, I've heard some more things as well. And, and, you know, Allen gets the sacks and that's obviously sort of the easy stat to gravitate towards, which is why, you know, if I'm accurate, that that's why some people think of him first. But yeah, that pain, the, 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 the havoc he can cause inside, uh, especially in the run game is, is potentially very special. If, like you said, he uh, if, you know, if he can sort of get the needed focus uh, at you know at all times, and uh, you know, and I think having you know having Del Rio and Rivera, I think is going to you know go a long way. You know, plus obviously the defensive line coach Sam Mills, part of the new uh, the new staff uh, as well. But yeah, uh, P- P- Payne's upside is pretty significant, and uh, we did a story on the Athletic uh, recently about who's the potential breakout star for your team, somebody who hasn't. Been to a Pro Bowl or been to, you know been named All Pro, and I, I was going to go with McLaurin, but I went with Payne instead because I just thought sort of like we're discussing that the upside is there, and that on this defensive line with so many pieces now, he really should have an opportunity to get a lot more, um, you know, one on one or at least just you know advantageous situations. Yeah, and Del Rio talking about him being more of a penetrating and more of a disruptive um, player <clears throat> speaks also, I think, to an aggressive style with some of their talent that they're going to um, favor um, uh, as as a defensive style and as a defensive coaching staff. You mentioned Ryan Anderson, and his quote to you was, I like Ryan Anderson. I think Ryan Anderson is a guy that plays with toughness and an edge that you covet defensively, so I appreciate his toughness. Those are a couple of guys that just stand out. He had mentioned um, Payne and Holcomb uh, prior to that. It's you and I have talked about Anderson. I think it's you and me that are, the, the two of us that have talked about um, Ryan Anderson together. I thought he was the most improved player on the team from 2018 to 2019, or certainly you could debate that. What's very clear to me now through several of these coaches' conference Zoom calls with you uh, guys on the beat is that Ryan Anderson's a 4-3 defensive end. Let's start with that. Am I right about that? Oh, one one million percent. We we ended that debate definitively this week when we had linebacker coach Steve Russ on, and he was asked about working with Anderson, and he just said flat out, "Oh, I haven't worked with him at all." He's on the defensive line. You wanted to talk to that those people, and we you know, we have already talked to 
to various people and, and you know Del Rio and Mills and others, but like it just feels like it's always kind of been like, yeah, we're still figuring out what to do, blah blah blah. But like it has the trend has felt more about him as a as a four three end. And, and to your point about us talking about it, I wrote I don't know a month or so ago, sort of the idea of should they, should they look should they consider trading Ryan Anderson not not because he's not potentially interesting, but because if he is a four three end. Where is he playing when you have all these other pieces? He's on an expiring contract, et cetera, et cetera. Um, so yeah, I, I think you can. I think both things can all be true. They can definitely like his toughness. He absolutely seems like a Del Rio type guy. I mean, Ryan Anderson definitely made big strides last year, and you know I could see him being an effective four-three end and run stop. It's just when you have you know what are you, what are you doing? Are you taking Chase Young off the field? Are you taking Kerrigan Sweat off the field? Are you, you know, I mean, I can imagine them playing Jonathan Allen as the end in yeah. a 4-3 situation with Payne and Ionitis or Settle inside. So, you know, it's just hard to see how to, you know, where all these snaps coming from. Um, also, in the conversation with Del Rio, uh, with regards to the edge, I, I figured I had to get in some sort of a Chase Young type <laughs> question. Um, I, I asked, you know, kind of how do you envision getting all these guys, you know, together and, you know, he said, uh, you know, hey, we're, we're going to swap players in and out. We're not expecting anyone, any one guy to have a, a massive workload. And he specifically, when I originally threw out the question, I mentioned the first three, Young, Kerrigan, and Sweat, and then later said, and if you want to add Ryan Anderson to that, go ahead. And then he made a point of saying, yeah, you only added Ryan Anderson to that. That's not how I'm viewing it. Ryan Anderson, to me, is part of it. But, again, it all sounds good. I just don't understand. I just don't see from the outside – how you realistically are giving all these guys the needed snaps to 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 get out there? Well, I mean, and the answer when you when you ask that question again, adding to the Ryan Anderson discussion, I like Ryan Anderson a lot. His toughness, the juicy, brings off the edge. I think he's really going to flourish in a four three approach. And he was the fourth one to get mentioned at defensive end in the question. Um, so. It's funny, you know, we're, we're, it's only August 7th, and we're not going to see any preseason games that are going to give us any clues. We're not going to watch enough practice that will give us any clues. We're going to find out a lot about everything September 13th against Philadelphia. But I started thinking about, you know, the, the, the crowd that you're referring to along the defensive front, and, and I think there's a possibility – that what you said, a guy like John Allen, I also think Matt Ioannidis can play um, as as a four three D end. I, I think Ioannidis and Allen and and Payne are obviously your and Settle are part of that interior mix. But if you needed Allen or Ioannidis, could actually play. Um, a four three defensive end. Anderson's clearly a four three defensive end. I think the Ryan Kerrigan conversation is an interesting one. He's on the roster, $11.5 bucks. We know that. They didn't restructure. Uh, it's a one-year thing. Rivera talked about, right, Ben? I got to get to know these guys before I start handing out contract extensions. Kerrigan, at times, we have seen him, not a lot, we have seen him line up in passing situations inside. We have seen that once or twice. I can't give you the game or the year, but I know it's happened before, and I wonder whether or not Del Rio considers Kerrigan's versatility. Yeah, I, I think I think it's definitely any of these guys could potentially move around and play in different spots. I think that's absolutely part of the part of the mix. Um, you know, we, we 
you know, just generally tend to talk in conventional terms, four, three, three, four, four down linemen, and we picture, you know, beefy guys, or whatever. But like, yeah, I mean, you could, depending on the situation, you could easily have, you know, uh, you know, it's, it's not inconceivable to think you could put young sweat Kerrigan out on the field somehow together on the line and let the defense figure out what the heck is happening, especially in an obvious passing situation. Right. So, uh, there's, there's all different things that can be done. And, and, you know, to me, all that sounds great and exciting and exotic, and you hope that um, <clears throat> the coaching staff and the players can maximize the situation and the opportunity. Uh, you know, I just at the, end, at the end of the day, these guys want to play. You want to get your best guys out on the field. So, you know, it's good to have a rotation mix, especially on the line. Uh, you know, it's just a matter of, you know, how much you're actually going to sit some of these guys. And, um, you know, I think that's interesting. But, by the way, the Kerrigan thing, I, I thought you were going to kind of say um, <laughs> that, you know, is he in trouble? The idea of uh, well, I mean, the idea of possibly moving him before before the before the season starts, simply because he is the expiring contract, and you do have these younger guys. I don't think that's likely at this point, which is why I haven't written about it. But I, I, I thought you were going to go for a second there. Well, I, I actually have given thought prior to you know no restructure of whether or not you know Ryan Carrickin could could be either a trade or a a cut casualty. Look, it's the only area of the team where there's perceived depth and perceived and a perceived crowd you know and and you you added to that in the off season with Chase Young so it'll be interesting um you know Matt Ioannidis was the strongest and most you know productive he, clearly he sees Payne's talent we know what John Allen um you know is and then you've got two first round picks from the last two years on the edge you know it's it's really it's exciting, actually, because in the reason I'm excited, Ben, is because I feel confident that we're going to have um, we're going to have that area of the team coached well. Right. Well, and also, like this is like you could like they could have like some dominant linebackers, or maybe they could have a great tight end or something. But like it's the line and the quarterback where really the ga- these games are typically won. And it appears on paper that they have a defensive line that maybe not this year, but in the near future could be an absolute dominant force. One of those groups that, you know, the NFL analysts get all, you know, geeked up about and start slobbering over because of how much the havoc they're causing on the pass rushers, stopping the run, what have you. And that could be the absolute <clears throat> the game changer. I mean, if you want to view this, if you want to say what's the what's the best hope for this team this year that you could imagine, you know, Maybe they're contending for the playoffs. It probably is that defensive line has turned into a top five, has helped turn that defense into a top five group. Um, I'm not saying that's necessarily likely. I'm just saying there is at least a, a timeline where something like that exists if Chase Young comes in and, and just crushes off the bat and everybody else kind of goes with it. So, you know, Ryan Kerrigan comes back from the injuries and so on. And, and that's what makes that group um, exciting for sure. Uh, we're talking, of course, to Ben Standig of The Athletic here on the podcast. Um, uh, in reading through your entire interview with Del Rio um, and st- staying focused on the personnel before we get to some of the personal um, thoughts that he had on personal things that he's been involved in here over the last few months, he mentioned KPL, you know, Kevin Pierre-Lewis, who was signed as a free agent in the offseason. Um, tell everybody what he thinks about him and any other players that he singled out defensively. Yeah, well, I, I brought him up because when we talked to Del Rio as a group a month or so prior, 
he, in talking about the linebacker unit, which is a you know an interesting group, a, a little bit of a confusing group, but an interesting group as to who's going to emerge. Uh, he Del Rio said, "Hey, you guys are kind of sleeping on Kevin Pierre Louis, so one of these guys we just signed." And you know, don't don't you know, don't do that. So this time I asked him essentially, hey, well, you mentioned him last time. Is there anybody else that we should keep an eye on? He didn't really, I don't think, drop any names of anybody else. But what he basically said was, and this has been echoed by other coaches as well, is like it's sort of cliche to talk about competition, competition, competition. That of course every coach on some level says that. But I, I maybe I'm being naive, but I do got to get the vibe here that it's a combination of these are new new coaching staff. There's no, there was no off season essentially, and because this team is where it is, it's effectively in a rebuild mode. That I think everything, other than maybe a handful of spots, is really kind of open. And so I don't think, you know, I think we could all probably guess right now with a fair degree of certainty what the starting lineup looks like, or or even the rotation. But I don't think it's necessarily as set as maybe we all think. Uh, it, it just it's simply because they don't know, <laughs> they don't know what's gonna. What exactly is going to happen? You know, they haven't seen these guys for months, and in the case of a guy like Del Rio, he's never seen most of his players in person. So I, just, I think he really just sort of emphasized sort of the idea of, um, <clears throat> you know, it's 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 pretty wide open for him um, across the board. We, we did talk a little bit about um, Fabian Moreau. I'll have some more on him and Holcomb in some in some separate um, in some separate pieces on the Athletic. Uh, and I think Fabian Moreau is a pretty interesting guy in the cornerback mix who doesn't get discussed enough. But um, yeah, I, I, I just think I'm not I'm not I'm not I'm not getting caught up in the idea of, that they think they have great pieces along the defense. But I do buy into the idea that they are are very open to letting the players actually win jobs rather than just walking into camp and saying you're the guy, you're the guy, you're the guy. What do you think about Reuben Foster? Is he going to be ready to play early in the season or not? I don't know, man. I mean, you know, it's over a year now since he had he, he had the injury. So obviously, you know, a torn ACL is you know not nothing. But we're in a, a modern era of medicine where these guys come back, you know, nine months, sometimes even less than that. I mean, when I say come back, I mean being on the field, not just you know getting cleared to, to, to practice. He's not even there yet. So you know, obviously, we haven't seen them. We've gotten relatively vague reports. About what what to expect. Uh, I'm 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 basically going up the mindset. If he shows up, great. If not, this is their linebacker unit and move forward. I mean, they have enough pieces that are you know it's in, in, you know okay to interesting. Um, I, you know, and that's the thing. Even if Ruben Foster is cleared, I mean, I don't know what he's you know we don't even know what he can do. It's, sim- it's similar somewhat to Alex Smith, right? I mean, just getting cleared isn't the same as well. Can you now go play in a football game? You know, I don't. I don't know what that is. So, I'm not factoring him into my my thinking. But they at least continue to at least sound somewhat optimistic about about his chances. He's doing. He's working hard in the in the meetings and all that kind of stuff. So, you know, kudos to him if he's if he's trying to get back. And it sounds like he is. But I, personally, I'm just not like thinking. Oh yeah, Ruben Foster comes back. Look out because I'm not. I'm not assuming that's happening. What did we find out this week um, from Ron Rivera about the quarterback situation? It was debated and discussed after you know his conference call interview earlier this week. You wrote about it. What do you think the big takeaways from the Alex Smith stuff and the Dwayne and the Dwayne Haskins stuff was? Well, I'll be curious to get your 
uh, reading of the tea leaves. But um, on the Alex Smith stuff, I'll, I'll be honest. I feel like we're asking too many questions about this <laughs> because I don't. I, we've talked about this before. Like I, I just cannot comprehend how he's ever playing again. Now, look, obviously, it's a fascinating story, a personal, you know, a, a, just of a human being going through this. Uh, you know, struggle to, to, to come back and, and, you know, not be, go beyond living with just a normal life on that leg that was ravaged uh, with, with 17 surgeries, the infections and all that. Um, but in terms of playing football, like, I mean, we keep bringing it up and Rivera keeps saying if he's cleared, he'll be part of a competition, which leads to stories about if he's, you know, he'll be part of the competition if cleared. And it just feels like it's overstating the situation to me. This is, again, I'm not, I don't see him practice right now. I, I, I'm not a doctor. I don't know for sure, but it's just hard for me to fathom how he becomes, um, how he ever gets cleared for practice, or cleared, passes the physical, and then is cleared to actually go out on the field and take a hit. Um, but in terms of the Haskins part of it, so the, the thought, I think the part that was interesting was R- Rivera, in talking about Smith, said that Smith, you know, even though he's, you know, dealing with his own sort of side work, you know, probably already knows around 75% of the playbook because he's, you know, kind of a been there, done that quarterback. So uh, um, I had an assist from somebody to suggest that I should maybe ask for well, Dwayne Haskins on the playbook, and um, if, if he's going to say that. So he said, "Oh, just you know, probably just a little bit less than that." And I thought this was a very interesting moment because I think how I think part of this job and part of it not, and I say that as a um, as a writer, but also if you're a fan, I think part of this job of paying attention to this team is reading the tea leaves and understanding what is being said. And I think some people took what he said as, wait a minute, Dwayne Haskins is behind a guy who hasn't played football since 2018. He's also behind Kyle Allen, a guy who like is not a real starting quarterback in this league. What on earth is happening? Where I completely went the other way, which was that Ron Rivera has been sort of, you know, not crapping on Haskins, but he was kind of play, giving him tough love early on after he took the job about it's going to be a competition, it's going to be open. And lately... I think because, when, and this is what Rivera and I talked about in the one-on-one I had with him recently, he laid down a challenge to Haskins, and then by and large, Haskins stood up to it. He got himself in better shape. He seems to be working hard. One of the knocks on Haskins was, was he putting in enough work last year? Um, it feels like it's happening. And so accordingly, Rivera started to give Haskins, I think, praise. And saying he's only around 75, you know, a little bit less than 75% of the playbook, is 100% not a knock. He's only a second-year quarterback in a new system. He had no offseason. It's his third system in three years. I don't think any of this means that Haskins is going to come out and kill it. I don't think Rivera could say that. But he did not He did not suggest that Dwayne Haskins is behind. It was the opposite. And I just think it's an interesting moment to like see how people reacted to that, whether they understood what Rivera was saying or if they were thinking, oh, boy, this kid's not improving. We have another coach kind of you know, uh, saying so. Uh, uh, my reaction was exactly yours, and and you and I don't agree on on a lot of things. That's not true. We probably agree on more um, things than not. But that was exactly my reaction <laughs> um, when I heard him say it. it was funny. I had people um, basically say, "Well, he he was comparing um, uh, your 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 question." Uh, was about a comparison to Kyle Allen and Alex Smith. I'm like, no, it was at, it was a comparison to Alex Smith's 75 percent comment. Um, maybe I, I misunderstood that, but no, I, I said because I, what I said I mentioned Kyle Allen, but I said I'm assuming Kyle Allen, having been in the offense for two years, is fluent in the playbook. So we don't even have to mention him on this front, right? There, you know, there's he, he if he doesn't know the playbook 100, what's he doing here? That's yeah. that's the whole reason he's here. 
Yeah, and I had people say, "Oh no, 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 no!" He he was when he said, "I don't think Dwayne is very far behind." He wasn't talking about far behind Alex Smith. No, I, I think. Um, anyway, I agree with you. I think this was very complimentary. I think it was very encouraging. I think it leads me to believe what I've believed all along. You know, in terms of just you know, uh, big picture, that there is very little chance. Um, that Dwayne Haskins isn't going to be the starter on opening day against Philadelphia. I just find that very difficult to believe. Um, And part of that stems from, I just don't think Alex Smith is going to take a legitimate NFL snap uh, ever again. Um, I don't care what we're hearing about the momentum and the clearing of doctors and the four days of progress and, you know, what he said about Alex Smith. I don't, I don't see that happening. Uh, I see Dwayne Haskins being a guy that's by the way, put in the work. And I think it's acknowledged by the head coach. Um, And, uh, and I think we're going to see Dwayne Haskins barring injury be the starter opening day and be the starter for 16 games barring injury and if there is 16 games that's what I think and I think it's we're going to look back on this and say typical you know summer off-season conversations but to me this one is close to a slam dunk um so I guess this is where I'll push back slightly like I feel I still think in the broader scheme of things he needs to see more from Haskins and that he does like Kyle Allen and that there's a puncher's chance whether, again, we've talked about this before, week one, he just feels like he hasn't had enough time for somehow for Dwayne to get ready, or more likely, you know, maybe at some point in the season if Dwayne struggles, he wants to go somewhere else. Um, I, I just think that in this case, I think that I think Ron is, you know, a lot of the things that these guys say to us are calculated. They're not, it isn't just his, an honest assessment of what they think. It's, it's, it, it's an attempt to get to the player, because they know that no matter what players say, they, they hear these things. To, to get to the player different messages. The message he was sending out in January and February was, hey, rookie 2019 first-round pick, I get it. That doesn't mean squat to me. I, I didn't draft you. I'm new. You need to show to me. And by the way, I've already seen what people – I've already heard what people think about you, and you've got some work to do. Don't think you don't. I think he sent that message, and then once that message seems to take hold, he then went back to, hey, good job. You listened. I appreciate that. Right. I'm glad to see it. Now let's keep going. So – I, I just I think those things are slightly different, but yes, logically he's the guy. And this is my thing with Alex Smith. Even if Alex Smith is clear, even if it's the greatest comeback story of all time, for the purpose of of this team, what's the upside for playing Alex Smith over Dwayne Haskins or even giving him practice reps? You need to see what Dwayne Haskins can be because if he's not the guy, you probably have to draft somebody next year. But you need to make sure of that. You need to give him the the, the necessary work, not just. Well, we, we, we they split the, the reps, and Alex played some games, and you know I don't know this is where we're at. We'll you know you know you got to figure this out. Of all the people that spoke this week, um, you know whether it was Russ, the linebackers coach, or the wide receivers coach yesterday, or Kendall Fuller, or Brandon Sheriff. Of all the people that spoke this week, what stood out to you? I mean, any any of these people, any of the quotes that they had? Oh. Good question. Um, Brandon Sheriff was interesting. You know, he's he's a guy. Whenever I go over to him in the locker, he's always willing to talk. He's just not willing to say anything. Um, he's very much, you know, keep keep it to himself. Uh, you know, the classic offensive lineman doesn't want to talk about himself. And obviously, we have some things to talk about him to talk about with him, namely the fact that he has a, uh, a you know he's playing on the franchise tag, didn't sign an extension. He was pretty buttoned up 
on that. But I thought he was fairly loose on some other stuff. He he really had fun discussing his love for Bush Light beer. Apparently, there's a a, a, a fruit uh, version of this, which sounds awful. But uh, apparently, he's a he's a fan good. and <laughs> no and uh, but but just it was sort of interesting just to see him you know sort of being loose on on that front right um a, a, a little bit I, the question I asked him which you know unfortunately he didn't really answer um uh, in the way I would hope was that you know you mentioned this I think earlier you know Rivera made a stance early on in his tenure that particularly when it was coming to Quentin Dunbar and Trent Williams wanting contract extension that hey look I just got here I'm not giving anybody an extension until I get to learn you learn more about you I don't want to make sure I'm doing the right thing by everybody involved. Then, of course, we had a pandemic, and he couldn't, he didn't get that opportunity. But Dunbar and Trent Williams, they pressed the issues, ultimately leading to trades for them. Brandon Scherf said nothing publicly, and he's playing on the tag. And so I asked Scherf, this thing goes both ways. Did you feel compelled to, to have to learn more about this new regime before you signed on? And like I said, he largely punted that. But I do think that's an interesting question with regards to Scherf. I mean, you know, we all just can sort of sit here and imagine, oh, they're trying to work out a deal. I don't know. I, I, I don't know where he's at. He says he wants to be here for, for, for play his whole career here. No reason to necessarily doubt him. But obviously it's been a largely chaotic scene. I don't think he's a dummy. And, you know, we'll see. If, I mean, he, he's, he's going to make $15 million this year on the tag. That's a lot of money, not just for a guard, but he's been hurt a bunch the last two years. So that's interesting, I think, for the team. I, I, you know, you've, you've also now lost Trent Williams. If you were to lose Brandon Sheriff at the end of the year, you know what that do for your line. I think it's a really interesting situation that we'll see unfold. Um, you know, does Sheriff ultimately grow interested enough in what's happening here to really push for a deal, or you know, did the two sides at the end of the year? As I can't imagine there's another tag, even though we've seen that happen before. <laughs> um, so you know, it'll be interesting to see what happens with with, with that situation. Back to Del Rio, real quickly. Um, he's he's not real fond of the players that are choosing to opt out, is he? <laughs> no, uh, he, uh, I, you know, as a, as a guy who was not just a former head coach, but a former player for 11 years, I asked him what did he think about guys around the league opting out. And I clarified, hopefully they understood, that, you know, Caleb Brantley at that point had, op- had opted out, Josh Harvey Clemens did not, and, and Brantley opted out for what was what is deemed a high-risk situation because of the coronavirus. So hopefully that's a different level than other guys choosing to opt out for whatever the reason. And uh, when I asked Del Rio what he thought, his response was, uh, I've got views on this that I'm going to keep to myself because they would effectively not do my uh, career any good or or would would sort of go against my uh, professional uh, world here. And, you know, that's that's a quote that a lot of people ran with because of the the vagueness of it and the implications of what that means as a guy who was a former player, known to be a tough guy, you know, things like that. I mean, you can read into it what you want. Um, and, and that led to some other questions with regards to some of his uh, political views that he has been willing to share publicly on Twitter and, 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 and feeling compelled to, to, to do that. And uh, I don't know, to me, it, it ultimately felt like even though, yes, it would be great to just talk about football and all that stuff, but, you know, it's been interesting to watch this guy put himself out there in the public square when it comes to the political game. We see people do it. You don't often see assistant coaches do it, I guess. Um, even if he is one that's a little more high profile. So it's been interesting to see that and knowing that a lot of his stances go against the player, the the, the, the ones we assumed that the players on his own team were going to have, and some sure. of them it's, it's obvious that it goes against it. So I think that's been interesting. His response has 
Um, but you can check out obviously on the athletic, um, you know, talked in that vein of, you know, um, he, he's open to conversation about these things, but he basically wasn't, wasn't afraid to, he's not afraid to express his thoughts. As, as, and, and if you're not open to conversation, you can kiss his ass, as he tweeted out about a month ago. But my favorite, my, my, the answer to the opting out, I have personal views that would probably not sit well with my professional occupation right now. I think I'll just leave it at that. Well, he's had personal views that may not sit well with a lot of uh, people in his profession over the last couple of months that he is not um, uh, backed off from expressing. Um, he's interesting. Bottom line is, uh, and, and Tommy and I were talking about this the other day, Ben, none of his players, none of his players who probably don't know him very well, we haven't seen any sort of pushback to any of his social media stuff over the last month and a half. And we have seen players in many cities, in many different sports, push back against owners, against coaches and their views, other teammates' views. I find that interesting. Now, they don't have an outspoken player really on their team. You know, there's no Josh Norman type on the team anymore. Um, but uh, I, I think that that, you know, who knows? For all we know, a lot of that could have been addressed um, behind closed doors, um, uh, figuratively speaking. Uh, but and if, if and if it was, I'd be really impressed. I know you've got to run because you've got to do a, a radio hit. Um, but I love catching up with you. I appreciate it. Have a good weekend. Always, always glad to talk, Kevin. Always appreciate, it, man. Good, enjoy watching the golf. All right, Ben Standig, the Athletic, everybody. All right, that's it. Uh, Really enjoyed it with Scott and Ben. Have a safe weekend. We will be back on Monday.